All right, so hello everyone. Welcome to the second part of our podcast series. My name is Anshul Agarwal, and I'm here uh, with my colleague Sierra Townsend. We are so excited for the opportunity to interview Shiva Subaraman, the director of the LGBTQ Resource Center at Georgetown University, uh, which is one of the first centers of its kind to be uh, institutionally funded by a Jesuit university. Um, since her, uh, since she sort of came to Georgetown in 2008, Shiva has established the center's mission and vision, creating countless uh, initiatives and uh, uh, other safe spaces and basically an overall home for LGBTQ students here at Georgetown. So we greatly admire the activism and work that she does for diversity and equity on this campus and we're so grateful that she was able to take the time out to speak to us today. So Shiva, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Great. So um, I guess our general sort of topic for today is mm -hmm. to discuss how the United States government can suppose to make decisions for such a, a diverse group of people like our population. Uh, and a lot of people advocate for a so-called colorblind state. Uh, so what do you see as the implications of a colorblind state or the dangers of a colorblind society? I don't think it exists. I think <laughs> the dangers of a colorblind society is what we're living with now um, and historically, right? Um, so I have to locate myself a little bit in this conversation. I came here as a foreign student, as we called it, um, almost four decades ago. And so one of the things that struck me the most as a foreigner is the strength of the democratic processes, not at the higher levels, but actually at the local levels. And by that I mean, you know, not even city government, but things like parent-teachers associations, your civic... Um, you know, local community organizations, your housing associations, which we didn't have from where I come in India, right? Like that was not what was, when we thought of democratic processes, that's not what we identified. So when I think of all of this, I think what I feel the most has been the significant changes that as more, as this country has become more racially diverse, um, many of them are not necessarily participating in local governance. Like, we only know how to enter the system at the higher levels of presidential elections or, you know, even maybe statewide elections. And so I think that has been, I think that's the part of the reason why we are in the situation we are in now. Okay, so so sort of going off of that a little bit. So when you're talking about getting involved in these sort of local sort of initiatives to uh, to promote democracy and to get mm -hmm. involved in the democratic process, um, why do you think it's important for people of color specifically to be adequately represented in these things? Like, what sort of perspective or insight might they bring that say someone else might not bring? It's basic, right? Because our access and first of all I don't think we understand what services are available to us so if we don't even enter that sphere we are not going to ask for services that affect us so one of the things that I worked with a lot was around domestic violence issues in the country and I used to organize a lot around the API community particularly the South Asian community something as simple as like you know um, translations you know the the rules and regulations to be translated in in, in very many Indian languages because there is not everybody speaks Hindi either, right? Um, so there was no there, so you there was no one to advocate for those needs. So unless you have a diverse constituency, these services cannot also be there to meet the needs of the constituents they are serving, because the, they only have one understanding of constituents, and that is everybody speaks English, for example. 
and we don't, right? So that's that's where I think the problems are there between what government offers as services or government offers to its citizens. But if its citizens don't even know how to access that, there isn't, there is no connection at all. Yeah, that's very true, yeah. Um, so having said that, um, so I know you're talking more about sort of local things, but mm -hmm. what I'm wondering is, so one of the biggest conversations now, like you said, mm -hmm. is how people only really focus on like the bigger government. So right now, the only news stories that we're seeing is how the 2018 election Correct. saw like many firsts. Mm -hmm. So including like the first Native American women to be elected right. to Congress, the first Muslim women to right. be elected to Congress. Um, so what do you see as sort of the effect of this? Like, do you think that can trickle down or do you think it will impact the kind of laws that are passed and might make it easier? I'm or? hoping it's going to trickle down. <laughs> um, I mean, it's amazing for me as somebody who has been here for 40 years, right, to to watch for the first time a large number of people who look like me be elected right. to Congress, be elected to the Senate. <laughs> but I'm also a skeptic about how much change can come from individuals in those larger systems. Okay. Because at the end of the day, those legislative processes have been laid down over time. So, but this time, what is hopeful for me is that it's not just one or two or three people, right? Like over a hundred people yeah. have been elected who represent a very wide range of diversity. They're not just women. They're not just racially diverse. They're, they're diverse by every aspect of diversity. So I'm hoping that that gives us a sort of a critical mass of people there that will actually then change the not only what issues are brought up as important to, to this country, um, what resources need to be allocated, and how. So I will use the LGBT community, for example, as an example, right? LGBT people are not counted in the census, right? Until And this time, we are not going to be counted in the, last, in the new census. Okay. So until last time, we were never counted. So if you're not counted, no resources are allocated to you. That's why the diversity stuff becomes so important, because it's a way to visibly ask for counting and representation and therefore allocation of resources, because all resources by government are allocated based on numbers. Mm -hmm. So if you don't exist as a number, you don't exist, which is why there is not allocation based for, for say, healthcare for LGBT people or legislative support for LGBT people or whatever it is, right? So are you hopeful that we'll be able to see those changes? That's what made? I'm hoping for, especially in Congress, right? Mm -hmm. That they are going to then, you know, Cortez, for example, that's what she's doing, right? Like mm -hmm. she's bringing not only her personal experience, but she's saying what she's bringing to the table is very specific. She's going to bring agendas that come from her background and experience that were not even seen as an issue before. So those were not even seen as issues, right? Like when we talk about what does Congress care about, it has cared about issues that are predominantly set, issues that affect mostly white upper class people, right? not even sense. the poor. Mm -hmm. yes. Of anybody, right? Right. So I guess building off of that, um, you know, how, how lawmakers tend to be focused on just those issues that are affecting, you know, the the groups that are are in power and are mm -hmm. most represented. Uh, what do you think is the best way for um, 
you know, white lawmakers or just white individuals in positions of power to sort of overcome that ignorance to issues that affect people of color and be the most effective allies that they can be. If, if there is if, a way. If, if possible, <laughs> right. You know, I actually think it existed before in history, during the civil rights, and then during the abolitionist time, when a lot of white allies did work alongside, you know, African Americans to make change possible. I actually think it has been less possible in the last 30 years. And I'm not, I actually don't know why. Yeah, I was, I I was about to ask that, like, do you, do you, do you think you can pinpoint Because I do something? feel, right, like when I read about the civil rights movement, there were so many, many white people involved in that, mm-hmm. right? And, and it is arguable that some of the changes would not have even happened if it had not been for their advocacy. Um, certainly the early abolitionists were all white people up north, right, who fought for the early stuff against, you know, abolishing slavery. Right. Because black people couldn't advocate for themselves. First of all, they were illiterate. They couldn't have been, they wouldn't have been allowed. They were lynched if they tried to advocate for themselves, right? So the early advocacies, especially in legislative processes in local state government and everything else happened by white abolitionists who saw that as sinful, right, for this country. I think we are living, I think as, you know what they call, you know, you, you've all heard about white flight, right, when it mm-hmm. comes to right, yeah. um, neighborhoods. I think it's the same thing here. As the numbers of people who are of people of color have grown in visibility and, and num- sheer numbers and visibility and power, I think white people have left this flight. So they're not even talking to us is what I think. So how do you think that affects, like, so what do you think the consequence of that has been? I think the consequence of that has been this polar, this very, what we are calling this very polarized stuff where people are not working across the aisle to pass a single legislation, right? So this year marks like the big anniversary for the ADA, the American Disabilities Act, mm-hmm. and which happened only in 1990. You, know? right. you all take it for granted, but actually it was only 1990. And I, I was here by then, and then I remember that the early people who fought for it and argued for it, um, it was a bipartisan bill that was created by the Democrats. It was um, supported by a lot of the Republicans, and George Bush, who died now, was the one who signed it. Right. Right. I just don't see that happening now about anything. Mm. About anything. Like, I don't think we would even come together about something as broad as an ADA. Mm-hmm. Because everything has become like this. I think part of it is that we are not, I don't even know how to say it. You know, it's like everything has become a lightning rod. Mm. And I don't know if it is because everything has become overly politicized too. So people are not seeing how this will benefit everyone, right? Like one of the largest arguments that was made by the ADA to pass was this will affect generations of people to come. It, they could prove to people, right, that this would affect rich, the poor, the not so poor. Right. But it will also affect the rich. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was listening to an interview earlier yesterday with the guy who create, drafted the bill, and he was talking about how, you know, George Bush was in a, in a wheelchair this last many years, right? Like, that would not have been possible 
Like, no president would have been willing to be visibly in a wheelchair before. And that was interesting to me. Because yeah. you know Franklin Roosevelt was in a wheelchair. Yeah, yeah. But nobody knows that, right? Like, he was always right. photographed like he was not in a wheelchair. Right. And he pointed out how little stigma there is now that actually George Bush could show up in big public events in a wheelchair, even though he was old, and that's why he was in a wheelchair. Yeah. But he also had Parkinson's, and he could talk about it in a way that I don't think we could have envisioned even 20 years ago. But that kind of um, understanding of the large-scale effects, I don't think we have. So one of my concerns about all these people getting elected to Congress is that people will only see them as, oh, you, if I pass a bill, it will only affect Indians in this country. Mm -hmm. Like as if it's not going to affect the Latinas, it's not going to affect the black folks, it's not going to affect the white folk. Like my only little group is these little Indians from somewhere, right? I think we really believe that, and I think that's the problem, as I see it as a lay citizen. Okay. I see that in, on campus. Mm -hmm. It's the same politics that plays out on campus. In what way do you see it on campus? Right, you know, like people think I'm only gay, right? So <laughs> nobody thinks of asking me any questions about what it means to be a woman or what it means to be a person of color. Right. So they will invite me only to talk about LGBT issues, right? Like as if I have no opinions or no thought processes or if, even if they're thinking intersectionality, they're only thinking intersectionality around LGBT. Right. So, so I'm like, never asked to have a voice around, say, racial justice on this campus, about which I actually know more than mm -hmm. anything else, right? Or justice around women or gender equity issues, right? So I think we do this because it's like the kind of question that sometimes students will say, right? Like I will say, I'll pick on you, right? Mm -hmm. And they'll say, oh, so do, you, do you know, how do you know Sarah? I'll be like, I don't know. I met her. She came for an interview. But she's not gay. <laughs> right? The assumption that the only students I know mm. are gay students. Right. And that the only students who seek me out are gay, or potentially gay, as I call it, right? <laughs> like nobody else will have an interest in talking to me. So we do this about everything across the board, I feel. And how do you think we overcome that? If possible. If possible, again. <laughs> I think we can overcome that only if we stop thinking about people in these only in these narrow identity boxes, right? Identity is very important, but it's a starting point. It's not the end point. And that's why I'm like hopeful that some of these pe folks who are coming into the Congress, they will be able to create coalitions and solidarity to to create that larger impact, right? Like they are not good. That, the people are, and it's also us, right? Like, we can't expect that all the Muslim women up in Congress now are only going to vote for Muslims. Right. But I think there is a sort of a unconscious expectation or conscious expectation of that, like we expected of Obama, right? Like, mm -hmm. that he would somehow make major change for African Americans mm -hmm. just because he was a black president. And right. he got so sh criticized for not making changes for black people. Right. And I'm like, but he's everybody's president. He's not just a the president for black folks. Right. And yet he got it on both sides, right? Mm -hmm. Because he, he was not seen as being just for black folks. Mm -hmm. Even though in his personal moments when Trevon Martin was killed or when he went for the shooting and um, which happened and he sang Amazing Grace, which was not part of the script, right? He showed how he responded as a black man. Yeah. And then he got criticized for that too, right? So that I think that, that that's what I worry about in this current political moment, that 
it's not them. We are putting them in boxes, and they, we will therefore not allow them to do, do the larger work mm-hmm. that we have elected them to do because okay. we will hold them narrowly responsible for why aren't you doing this for Latinas? Why aren't you doing this for Muslims? Why aren't you doing this for Indians? Right. That makes a lot of sense. Well, and I think that's hampered the process a lot, I feel, mm. from what I see from here. Well, you spoke a little bit about how you see it on campus. I know that in our country, maybe it'd be like mm-hmm. a bit more difficult to like change that as a whole. But what do you see as sort of maybe like one or two tangible steps we can take to maybe overcoming this bias or this like perception of like putting people in boxes just on our campus? So let me give you a <laughs> when Juan Martinez and Kenachik got elected to Gaza. Uh-huh. Everybody talked about Juan as a Latina. Right. As undocumented. Right. No mention of his queer status, although he's not particularly closeted about it as far as I know. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And then I talked to him about it and I said, did you say it? I mean, like, did you hide this or did you say right, it? Right, right, right. No, but, you know, people just see what they want to see. So unless you insist on that that I go everywhere and I'm all of these things and mm-hmm. you insist on own all of your pieces of who you are. Yeah. I don't think it'll change. So I often find myself, you know, insisting in a lot of spaces, right? Like I'm not just an, the director of the, yes, my role is to be the director of the LGBT center. So what does that mean? I advocate for policy changes and for work around LGBT people. But I as a person can also advocate for and I can also work with CMEA and other offices to advocate for women or people of color. That's not my job, but that doesn't... That doesn't preclude you from doing advocacy. it. Advocacy. It just means there's one more voice at the table, right? So I have advocated, obviously, you know, when La Casa Latina was happening, you know, I was a big support for those students because I was very close to some of the students who were organizing uh, for Casa Latina. I'm not a Latinx, what? but it's that. Why does Shiva care? She's not Latinx. Why wouldn't I care? Right. And I think the problem with saying it's intersectional is that people don't, I think intersectional is overused, and I think people no longer even understand what the hell that is about. (laughs) I don't think we even know. I think, you know, everybody claims it, and I think when I show up in spaces and say, well, you know, like when I show up and say I'm Hindu. Right. It's it's difficult, right? Like it, it has been difficult for me since the Brahmachari until the Brahmachari came, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because Indian students didn't want to have anything to do with me for whatever the reason, right? Yeah. And it was very difficult for me to show up in an authentic way in those Hindu Indian spaces to say I'm Hindu and I'm Indian and I'm LGBT. Right. And I actually understand a lot of these things, and I can advocate for a lot of these things, even for you as Hindu students. Mm. So I think some of it is what I would ask students also to do is for you all to think about what parts of your identities do you do you advocate even for yourselves? Right. What parts of it do you leave behind? What parts of it are you... You know, we talk a lot about this is my salient identity and some others are not as salient. Mm-hmm. And that may be, you know, like s- certainly sometimes at different places, different parts are salient. But it's also a question of in day-to-day, right? Like when you're in your classrooms, in your clubs, in your organizations, in your residential spaces, mm-hmm. what do you correct students, right? Like if, say, a friend walks up and they're talking to you and they say, oh, you must be from, 
so you say your name and they know a little bit and they say oh you must be from in you know india right um or you must speak hindi and you don't right do you correct them and say no i do not because i'm from somewhere else mm-hmm. or you just let it slide right mm-hmm. like that kind of stuff okay well, i don't know I, i i because i it really has been troubling me a lot you know how how we how narrow we are yeah well here's to hoping that maybe things can get better in that sense where yes. it's like i think definitely if we all try and like focus on our identities right. like you said in like all aspects right. of them and then mm-hmm. i think one of the biggest steps also is to acknowledge that other people also have like very holistic right. identities like right. that and yeah. not putting those in them into those But, boxes yeah. as you said or right. having expectations that that's the only thing they will do right right that they will only act on what we perceive to be their salient identity mm-hmm. which might not be th- their salient identity yeah. from their perspective from right from their perspective right exactly. so we do that a lot at local a very small level and i think that expands all the way to government mm. wow okay so i think that's what is tough yeah, yeah. well okay. thank you so much thank for taking you. the time to speak to us yeah, today yeah so what do you guys do it. is you edit and make it into a podcast